0: The scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians, chapter 9, verses 1 to 2, 11 to 12, and 19 to 23. Then chapter 10, verses 23 through 2, chapter 11, verse 1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the work result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, Shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, This has been offered in sacrifice. Then do not eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I am referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. But why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the Church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Since our nation's
1: founding and embedded in the Declaration of Independence is the belief that every American has the inalienable right to pursue life, liberty, and happiness. And throughout this country's history, we've been unpacking what it means for this increasingly diverse America to enjoy those rights, whether it's the right to bear arms, the right to be free from slavery, the right for women to vote, or people of faith to express their faith, and on to more recent historical developments of civil rights and LGBTQ rights. And while they have often been criticized as presumptuous, these ideals of rights and freedoms also inform America's involvement in the world out of a desire to make the world a better place and to improve the lives of our global neighbors. You know, after World War II, America assisted in the rebuilding of Europe and Japan, and this legacy continues in other parts of the world today. You know, last year, uh, the United States gave 30 billion, $39 billion to foreign aid, and America provides more foreign aid than any other country in the world. But, it's less than 1% of our national budget. In fact, of the wealthiest countries, America ranks near the bottom in terms of foreign aid given as a percentage of the nation's GDP. You'll see that on the chart here to my right. (laughs) While America's desire to advocate for freedom and individual rights has been a force for good in the world, there are also times when America's involvement abroad is criticized and seen as overbearing or perhaps even colonial. So navigating these American ideals of rights and freedoms with the needs of others in different cultural, national, and political contexts requires wisdom and care. And in some ways, America's interaction abroad with the ideals that inform our national identity are a reflection of what it means for a Christ follower to interact with the world around us. We want others to share this life-changing relationship and world-changing relationship with God and with God's Son, Jesus. In our understanding of what it means to be free and the kind of rights that we enjoy when we come into relationship with Jesus, the one who is uh, ultimately free and the one who holds all rights as the creator of the universe. We're trying to figure out what that looks like. You know, many of us or many people hope for religion just to tell us what to do so that we can live a good and happy life. But often life is a lot more nuanced than that. You know, as Christ followers, we're called to be in the world, but not of the world. And as we heard in this text today, Paul speaks of his freedom, saying, I am free and I belong to no one, as he says in verse 19 of chapter 9. In verse 10, verse 23, he quotes the Corinthian church's own words, thinking, I have the right to do anything. In their understanding of the gospel and a and the freedom they have of their conscience. Now, if you combine these kinds of statements with the words of Jesus that we sung earlier today that said, the one whom the Son sets free is free indeed, you'll realize that verses like these really easily resonate with our individualistic approach to our rights and our freedoms. And often these rights and freedoms are used to justify why the government or why someone else shouldn't interfere with our freedom to worship or freedom to choose a particular lifestyle. Or we gather to, or we uh, we use our freedoms and rights as reasons to be wary of mask guidelines and pandemic lockdowns. So, what's the way through this? In the text today, Paul delves deeper into the kinds of rights and freedoms that we have as Christ followers, but also speaks to the responsibilities that go along with those rights and freedoms, especially in light of Christ. We do have rights and freedoms, but there are responsibilities that go along with them. Now, we're covering two chapters here, so I'm going to give a quick overview of what's going on and then look at the three ways of engaging our rights and our freedoms with those around us. So last week, we looked at chapter 8, the rules for food rules. And then first part of chapter 9 talks about Paul's personal rights and freedoms. And then the second half of chapter 9 talks about the freedom to fully identify with anyone and everyone. And then the in beginning of chapter 10 talks about the freedom to partially identify. And then this middle part of chapter 10 is freedom to not identify. There are parts that you shouldn't identify with. And the last section returns to this principle of how do we apply our freedom and rights as, in terms of food and sharing a meal with others. You know, in Paul's personal freedom and rights, uh, Paul talks about that in the first part of chapter 9. His rights as a minister of the, to the Corinthian church. You know, some at the church, had questioned his apostleship. Was he a true apostle and should they listen to him? But he asserts that he is both a witness and called personally by Jesus. And those were two qualifications for apostleship in the early church. As an apostle and as a missionary, he had the right to receive financial support from the church. And also, as he says in this chapter, to have a wife, his wife, accompany him if he had had a wife. Yet, he says, I don't exercise those rights. Why is that? Look at chapter 19, uh, verse 19. He says, though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to win uh, to everyone, to win as many as possible. It's because he was free in Christ that Paul is free to be a slave serving a particular purpose, the advancement of the gospel. And we were introduced to this kind of uh, Uh, paradox earlier in the call to worship. Paul restrains his personal rights and freedoms for the greater freedom of all. And this goes often against what Americans cite as their freedoms and rights. We often fail to ask what those freedom and rights are for. To what end goal do those freedoms and rights that we are staunchly defending actually serve? We will fight tooth and nail for personal freedom and rights, but we often don't think about the purpose for the larger community. Much of what makes news today is essentially one group not wanting another group to uh, impose restrictions on their individual rights. A lot of the shouting across the aisle often comes across just as pure selfishness. You know, in the sci-fi series, Star Trek, there is something known as the Prime Directive that any Starfleet exploration, any Starfleet crew member must follow when their crews encounter a new people group. And though they might have superior knowledge and strength and technology, Starfleet personnel must not interfere with the normal development of a more primitive civilization that they encounter. They needed wisdom to, uh, in how they shared their technology and knowledge in a way that didn't adversely affect The civilization that they interacted with. They had their rights and freedoms to use their knowledge and technology, but they had a responsibility that accompanied those rights and freedoms for the benefit of the people group that they were encountering. For Paul, though he has rights and freedoms, he exercises and withholds exercising those rights depending on the circumstance and depending on who he is trying to reach with the gospel. The exercising of his personal rights and freedoms is not what takes priority for Paul, but it's first the concern for the hearer to receive the gospel. This is the ultimate act of love for the other, doing whatever it takes for people to enter into a flourishing and loving relationship with the living God. That's the overlying responsibility that informs the exercise of our rights and our freedoms. That's the prime directive, if you like, in God's kingdom. A radical love for the other that helps them takes further take further steps in their relationship to, with Jesus. So the question that Paul goes on to answer now is, how far should we go to identify with the culture around us to pursue this goal? And it's on the heels of chapter 8 where he addresses how Christ's followers might honor Jewish food laws that Paul says, you know, sometimes, yes, you should... Follow the laws, sometimes no. It's depending on who you know, on how much you know, and who's watching. But this issue addresses a deep theological concern that's worth talking about, and that's what we're doing here right now. It's in these chapters that Paul unpacks this trilogy of three relationships between Christ's followers and the world around us. Three ways to engage in this prime directive of God's kingdom. And the important thing for us is to distinguish between those situations. Now, first, there's total identification, where he says, be all things to all people. Secondly, is partial identification. Be some things to some people. And then the third is, don't identify at all. Be nothing to nobody. Let's talk about the first one, freedom for total identification in verses 19 to 23 of chapter 9. As we've been learning in this series, you'll see it up on the screen here, when we see the text presented as a chiasm, the Jewish rhetorical structure often used at the time, it helps us see the argument. In verses 19 and 22 and 23, Paul's goal is clearly repeated here. You'll see it's highlighted in yellow. Reach all people to win them to Christ, to win them to Christ, to win them to Christ. In order for the gospel to reach self-discipline, he goes on to say that you must, oh, in order for the gospel to reach all people, you must exercise self-discipline using images of a boxer or a runner striving towards the prize. You are to do everything within your ability and within your power to identify with those you are trying to reach. And most of the time, if you've come across this passage before, we expect Paul to be saying something like this. To the Jew, become like a Jew. To those under the law, become like one under the law. To those outside of the law, become as one Outside of the law, to the Gentile, become like a Gentile. That's what we would expect him to say, but he doesn't say that. That last phrase. How is he, What's he saying? Look at the simple reduction of this argument. At the beginning and the end, he says, "I became a slave to all people." In the middle, I became a, uh, I became a Jew. For Jews, I lived under Torah, and Gentiles, I lived outside of Torah. But then he goes, "I became weak." We expect him to say to the Gentile, become like a Gentile. But he says, become weak. Because, and Paul can't become like a Gentile because he is a Jew. And even in his argument about being all things to all people, he affirms this limit about identifying fully when it goes against your core identity. You know, we can identify in his lifestyle, he can live as one under Torah. And he can live as one under not under Torah. But in identity, he knows he cannot become a Gentile. And so this has two implications for us. And firstly, with our freedoms and rights in Christ's kingdom, we are no longer obligated to follow the demands of the Old Testament law in order to maintain our right standing before God. Christ has already done that on our behalf. And when we respond to him in faith, that's why it's good news. And secondly, we have full freedom to enter into the world of others, learning their world and their needs and their questions, being in relationship with them, we can embrace the image of God found in them and in their subculture. We can take a step into the world, and that does not change our status before God. So be free to identify with them for the sake of the gospel. But while we can identify with their weakness by acknowledging our own, there are limits where identification with them fully can confront our identities as followers of Christ. And this leads us to the second kind of identification, partial identification. The beginning of chapter 10, uh, we can see that it's one thing to identify with the language and the food and the clothing and the music and maybe patterns of interaction of others. But what about the sacraments of others? The sacraments are those specific actions that express meaning in their worldview and identity. Just how far do we go in identifying with others? In First Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, uh, chapter 10, verse 3 and 4, Paul describes and links it back to the Old Testament Hebrew Exodus. Paul is saying the New Testament, the Jewish Exodus story, it parallels the New Testament experience of the Corinthian church. The Hebrews were passing through the sea as they fled. Egypt, that looks forward to Jesus' baptism. As they went into the desert, they received water from a rock, and they they received manna from heaven. And these look forward to Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper for his followers to remember his crucifixion. You see, the Hebrews did the right actions as commanded by God. They ate the bread, they passed through the sea, they drank water from the rock that God provided. But these sacraments weren't enough to For God to save the Hebrews. The Old Testament sacraments were given as a warning to the Hebrews and as instruction to the Corinthian church and also to us today. Some in the Corinthian church thought that because they participated in the Christian sacraments of the Lord's supper, as we're about to do in a few moments, they knew that the, and they knew that the idols were false. They believed they had the freedom and the right to join in pagan idol worship. Their consciences informed them that it was okay. Because idols weren't real anyways. So why not share a meat-filled feast with some old friends if the worship didn't really mean anything to them? I'm just connecting with my friends. They were recipients of God's grace in the Lord's Supper. But they continued to walk and live in ways that went against that grace. And like the Hebrew Exodus that spoke of God's saving acts, the Corinthians were tempted by idolatry, tempted by sexual immorality, and tempted by uh, putting the Lord to their test with their grumbling, complaining against God. In short, they undervalued God's costly grace and love, and they doubted what God said and mixed with the values and the uh, of the surrounding culture. Though they were God's people, called to be set apart for God's purposes, what they did displeased God. So for Paul, there was a line to be drawn. Yes, be with your friends, have meals with them in their homes, even when they serve meat that was sacrificed to idols, but don't go to the temple with them and join in their activities that would go against your commitment to Christ. Because those actions in those temples speak significantly about your connection to God and to the body of Christ, the church. There is a line to cross where you can identify with others in such a way that is, incongruous. It doesn't line up with your relationship and commitment to Jesus. This leads us to the last kind of identification, which is no identification. Be nothing to nobody. (laughs) What does that line look like today when our friends may not be worshiping in temples and their sacraments may not be offered to physical idols? So I'll answer that in just a few moments, but let's get to this third one first. Paul is addressing this Gentile sacramental past that surrounded all of Paul's readers in the Corinthian church. In the middle of chapter 10, verse 20, Paul contrasts the cup of the Lord, the cup of the Lord with the cup of demons and the body of Christ with the table of demons. And what he's saying is you cannot be in communion with the Lord and in communion with demons through idol worship, which is essentially what idol worship is. You cannot be both and in this instance. It's an either or. You see, communion in the body of Christ unites us to the body of Christ, the church, and to the, and to the church that is his body. And exclusively so. In verse 17, ch- chapter 10, verse 17, Paul, uh, Paul refers to one loaf. We who are many as one body, for we all share in one loaf. And this loaf and body is referring to Christ's followers, not the entire human race. So the worship of idols is... In Paul's view, joining with demons, which gives reason for Christ's followers to not identify with certain practices for the sake of the gospel. Because to do so is detrimental not only to your witness of Christ to others, which is the goal, that's the main point, but it also affects our relationship with God and with the body of Christ. So, summarizing these three ways to live, live out our rights and freedoms responsibly. One is be all things to all people. Share with others in a cultural setting without losing your identity. Have the freedom to do that because of what Christ has done for us. Secondly, be some things to some people. Remember the warning of the Hebrew Exodus. They obeyed God in the sacraments God instituted, but the Hebrews failed in the ethical responses to those sacraments. They fell into idolatry and other sins, resulting in their destruction because they embraced the values of the surrounding culture. Their story is a warning for us to not fall into the same temptation. Third, and there are some cases where you should be nothing to no one. The worship of idols is communion with demons. It is incompatible with the body of Christ that's made possible with the Lord's Supper. Now, Going back to that question, it's like, well, I don't, we don't really have pagan temples that we're tempted by. So we don't have these obvious physical temples, and we don't have these idols that we would bow down to and these feasts to the idols. But we, what we do worship in our world is ideologies that we give our lives and our attention to. We prioritize our finances. We prioritize our behaviors to line up with those, those ideologies. We have some, we have meals and with people who share the same passions, we network with them and we depend, become dependent on them. And in short, we often give our lives to whatever cause that is, whatever ideology that frames the world for us. But often our identification with the surrounding culture, even if it's well intended, we can all fall into the same idolatry. You know, what's a good indicator of leaning towards idolatry in your life? For me, it's when I have that thing that rises up in my heart that says, you know, i got to have this, God. Or, Or God, I actually don't really want to hear what you have to say about this, this part of my life. That's no go zone. I figured it out. I'm okay with it. I'm good with where I'm at. Just let me do my stuff. You know, as a single person, I struggle with how to appropriately and faithfully understand my attractions and express myself sexually in a way that honored God. You know, Hollywood sold me the lie that having a romantic partner was a necessity to be a complete person. And porn told me that sexual expression and feeling good was a right that every human enjoyed as long as no one got hurt. You know, And even as a married person, I'm constantly bombarded by a world that bows down to the world, to the idol's attraction and personal happiness. Those are considered my rights and my freedoms that the world says I'm entitled to those. And no one and no ideology has the right to prevent me from fulfilling those expectations. You know, I can participate in the Lord's Supper with you all on a Sunday and walk back out and be tempted to bow my life in union with those ideals. But those aren't the kinds of rights and freedoms that God says are integral to your true happiness and well-being. The story of God in Scripture says that aligning our lives with God's in all parts of our lives is what brings maximum flourishing to our life and to the world we live in. And sharing the message of Christ to make the world more whole and to make the world more just is what brings ultimate happiness and brings ultimate blessing. So how do we enter in to this blessing of sharing the gospel with those who may have a different life experience than us? We return back to Paul's statement about being all things to all people. And the one distinction that he makes, as we highlighted earlier in verse 22 and 23, saying, to the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. That's happiness language. That's you know, meaning language. Paul is just continuing his understanding of Christ's incarnation. You see, Jesus, the creator of the universe, emptied himself for the sake of the gospel. Jesus commanded his disciples to do the same. When they, go out, when they went out to do ministry, he said, take nothing with you. In other words, go in weakness. Go in poverty to serve others. You know, weakness and strength is something that Paul introduced in the previous chapter that we talked about last week on eating meat sacrificed to idols. There he said, you who are strong in your faith, go and empty yourself of your strong conscience to serve those who are weak in conscience. Spend time with them, be in their world, and perhaps there is something in their strength that can speak to your weakness. D.T. Niles is a Sri Lankan pastor, and a theologian who comments on how serving from a position of power is not actually true service. It's beneficence. Ministering in a developing country, that's where he, you know, in Sri Lanka, he saw many Western Christians come and hope to preach the gospel, and they built hospitals and schools and farms and small business. And while these initiatives helped the communities, they were seen as sources of secular strength, patronage, and control, perhaps, and where donors are making money off of these initiatives. And in areas where there is great need, like Sri Lanka, the the church became something to be suspicious of and to be feared, or perhaps to be dependent on. And instead, he writes, offering this approach on the screen here, the only way to build love between two people or two groups of people is to be so Related to each other to stand in need of each other. The Christian community must serve, but it must also be in a position where it needs to be served. That's recognizing our weakness. Paul understood the only way to win the weak was to join them in their weakness. God entered the world in weakness as a baby, born into a barn, uh, born in a barn to an unmarried couple who eventually had to live as refugees for a time. Paul did not do his missionary work like Constantine or Charlemagne or the Spanish conquistadors who conquered a land with an army and then stood up with priests to tell them to respond to the gospel. He didn't approach a city church negotiating a speaker's fee and speaker's contract requiring a chartered airplane and a Four Seasons hotel stay with security detail and a sound system On with you know, video screens in the National Mall, promising uh, with the promoters, guaranteeing a minimum attendance of 10,000 people and donations of $500,000. Instead, he simply boasted in his weakness that some might know Christ. Everything in his life was about this prime directive in God's kingdom. In the final section of chapter 10, Paul returns to the issue of food again, and he sa- essentially says the following, love, and sensitivity and concern for building up the other towards salvation is the central driving concern in determining how we as Christ followers engage with the world around us. Can you eat meat, idol meat served at the temple operated restaurants? Yes, if you really understand that idols don't exist and no one is present who is deeply unsettled by these so called gods. Can you eat at and drink at idol worship services? No. Eating is participating in the worship of demons. Can you buy idol meat and eat it at home? Yes. Idols don't exist, and the meat itself belongs to God. All the earth is his, so enjoy it. What about at a dinner party in the home of an unbelieving friend? Paul says, eat whatever is set before you. You have freedom to do that. But if someone tells you this is idol meat, out of love for this person who's told you, don't eat it. Paul closes this uh, chapter, you know, whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Don't cause someone to stumble. For Paul, eating or not eating meat sacrificed to idols was not the point. Get out of the way of being a stumbling block for people to see God's glory. Do whatever you can to please everyone in every way. Lay down your rights and freedoms for this great responsibility of helping people come into a living relationship with God. And that's how we give God maximum glory, which is the prime directive, what the prime directive exists for. So Paul closes, imitate me as as he imitates Christ. Be free to be a slave to the gospel. Enjoy its blessings and find your life giving maximum glory to God.
0: Amen.